This morning, we're, as Ryan said, we're continuing our series on the, the writing prophets. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, please open that to the book of Obadiah. If you don't have one with you, there's some in these chair pockets that Ryan already drew your attention to and at the ends of the side aisles. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that one with you when you go. Um, the Obadiah this is a bit of a tricky one to find. It's the smallest book in the Old Testament. It's just one chapter. Um, it's right between Amos and Jonah. So you can use the table of contents. There's no shame in that. If you borrow one of these paperbacks, it's uh, page 656. Um, and you can just put your finger there while I tell you a story. There once were two brothers. Twins, actually. The older twin was burly and outdoorsy. He was a hunter. He would have you know, felt right at home in the Kruger. Right? He, was a, he was a big, outdoorsy guy. The younger twin was a, a little more indoorsy. He was a little bookish. Um, they're very different, and, and these two boys never really got along. Now, I have sons. I have two boys. Some of you have sons. You know that when, kids, when boys are young, brothers are always a little bit like frenemies, right? Like they can oscillate between best friends and arch nemeses in the space of seconds, depending on who has the toy. But, but these boys didn't really oscillate. They were always at odds with one another. Um, in, in fact, their mother noticed that that in utero, they were already wrestling with one another. They were fighting it out in the womb. And when, when they were born, the younger son was literally at his brother's heels. He was holding onto his foot as they were born. The older son they named Esau, and the younger brother they named Jacob. And Esau, as the older, was entitled to a birthright, uh, an extra share of his father's inheritance for being firstborn, And he was entitled to his father's blessing, the blessing of the firstborn. And Jacob's name, and I I apologize if any of you named your kids Jacob. I think Jacob's a wonderful name, but what it means is cheater. And Jacob proved to be a cheater. He cheated his brother out of both his birthright and his blessing. One time Esau came in hungry from the field. Jacob was making some food and Esau said, give me some of that stew. And Jacob said, sell sell me your birthright. Esau, not, not wise, did it. He sold him his birthright for a, a pot, for a bowl of stew. And then later, when their father was old, his eyes were weak, Jacob took advantage of his father's failing eyesight, imitated, faked his father out, made him think he was his brother, and stole his blessing as well. And then Jacob had to run for his life from his brother, which you can understand. He stayed away for 20 years. And when he came back, now with family in tow, 12 sons, um, even then, even though Esau said all was forgiven, Jacob still He still didn't trust him entirely, and so they they settled a ways apart. And these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, became two nations, Israel and Edom. And the bad blood continued. So when Israel came out of slavery in Egypt at the time of the Exodus, they asked Edom for permission to pass through their land. They just wanted to walk through on the way to their home that God had prepared for them, and Edom said no, and they had to walk around. And later in the time of David, There was actual war between them, and Israel, Edom had to pay tribute to Israel. They had to serve Israel. They eventually rebelled and got free, but there was never really an easy peace. These two nations were always kind of rivals. And I I don't know what you could compare this to, right? This is the first weekend of the um, men's college basketball championship. You might say University of North Carolina and Duke, which are like rival schools right down the road, just hate each other's guts, right? You can ask Pastor Ryan about that afterwards. Go heels. And um, maybe it's uh, like spring box, all blacks. But, but even like comparing it to a sports rivalry doesn't really do it justice, right? It, it maybe like 
India and Pakistan, maybe, maybe Israel and Palestine. Years later, God's people, Israel, had strayed far from him. They had broken their covenant with God. They'd worshipped other gods. They turned away from doing justice. And so God sent a foreign superpower, Babylon, to take them into exile, to come to sack Jerusalem and to actually take the people physically out of their homes thousands of miles away. And on the day that that happened, Edom came out to gloat. They came out, like they brought like their popcorn. They came out to just watch their enemies be punished and taken far away. They, they watched these people who by ancestry were their family, char- tr- harshly treated and, and robbed of their homes, robbed of their possessions, robbed of the lives that they had. And, and, and once the dust settled, when Israel had been taken into exile, Edom came in and actually looted their cities. And even kind of set up house and like moved right in to their cities, moved right in to their homes. And so the, the last thing, one of the last things the people of Judah saw as they were going into exile, leaving, as, as they were grieving, as they were leaving loved ones behind, as they were leaving their homes behind, was these people that were their family, that you know, were descended from Abraham, just laughing in their face, laughing at their calamity. And it's into that situation that Obadiah speaks. So now you can open those Bibles back up. Um, we're going to read the book of Obadiah, it's beginning in verse 1, and this will be on the screen behind me as well. So please follow along with me as I read. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you, those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion... 
there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Would you pray with me? Our Father, it's it's such a holy thing to read your word, to hear you speaking. And we don't wanna we don't want to enter this time flippantly. We want to come as those who are hearing the voice of God, because this word is your voice. And so please help me to be a faithful servant of this word, and please help us all to be faithful stewards of what you say in this time. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So God, at a time when his people were in shock, they were grieving, they were feeling utterly betrayed and alone, he spoke to them about something that might to you feel a little tone deaf. Because God's message to his people who have just lost their homes is a message about the day of judgment. The day of the Lord, the day all people stand before God to receive his reward or condemnation. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. So Obadiah's is a message of judgment. You might think, judgment? Haven't, haven't they had a hard enough go of it? Is, aren't things bad enough that we don't need more judgment? Why are you talking about this? But But Obadiah's message isn't just about judgment. It's also a message of escape. Verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. God is good, and his words are good for us. So, So to understand what God is saying here, to understand what it means for us, we need to see three things in Obadiah's prophecy. We need to see why judgment can be an encouragement. We need to see who doesn't escape. And we need to see who does. And you have an outline in the back of your bulletin if that helps you. So first, why judgment can be an encouragement. God knows and will right every wrong. So just imagine what it was like to be God's people. They've been utterly defeated, right? They, they, Jerusalem was sieged. They, they were in there. They were frightened and they were starving. And then a breach is made in the wall and their enemies pour in. And now they're, they're saying goodbye to their home and they may never come back again. I mean, they're in a foreign land And they're just feeling totally broken and alone. And they were wondering, does God still care about us? I mean, God God did this to us, and we deserved it. But but does God still care about us? Are we going to hear from God again? Are we going to experience his kindness again? Are are we going to see our homes again? And then they receive this message from God, and it's addressed not to them, but to Edom. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, 
Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. They get to listen in, right? They get to kind of, if you guys remember when houses had phones, right? Phones just weren't in pockets, but they were in homes. And you could, you know, pick up the other line and hear what someone was saying to the other end. They're, they're getting to hear what God says to Edom. And God is saying to Edom, you're next. I'm coming for you. So God unpacks his charge against Edom, beginning in verse 10. And, and we can see in this, and the people of Israel would see in this, that they would have seen that God saw everything Edom did on the day Jerusalem fell. In verse 11 it says, You stood aloof. When the foreigners came in, you were like one of them. In verse 12 he says, um, I saw you gloat. I saw you boast. Verse 13, he saw that they entered the gate. He saw that they looted Judah's wealth. And verse 14, I mean, this is so vivid. He says they stood at the crossroads. So you just imagine, right, this, this fortified city has just fallen, right? The enemies are pouring in and people are just fleeing out the back as fast as they can, running for their lives, maybe carrying small children. I mean, they've left everything behind. They just want to live. They're, they're looking desperately for a place to hide. And Edom is there, the Edomites, and they're just standing in the road. They're standing in the crossroads. And as these people are fleeing for their lives, the Edomites are catching them. They're gathering them up and they're returning them to the Babylonians. They're, they're giving them back to the enemies they're, they're running desperately from. And God saw all of it. He saw all of it. I mean, Edom, they were family. They should have helped. At the very least, they should have wept. But they came out and they gloated. And they helped the Babylonians. And God saw it all and he promises to make it right. He says, as you have, been, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Do you know that God knows all of your hurts? That he knows every wrong done to you. He knows what no one else knows. He knows every broken promise, every cutting word, every hand raised in anger. He knows all the whispered gossip, every truth twisted and used against you. He knows every wrong dealt to you because of where you were born or what color your skin is. He knows every Christian thrown in prison. He knows every church building burned to the ground. God sees it all, and it all matters to him. You matter to him. He made you. He knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows every hurt done to you, and it matters to him. And this is how judgment can be an encouragement. You know that no wrong goes unaddressed. That no hurt lasts forever. There's a day when every wrong is made right, and after which there will never be another wrong forever. God knows and will right every wrong. But if God's judgment is an encouragement, it's also, it also leaves us unsettled. After, after all, which of us has a clean conscience, right? Which of us doesn't tremble a little bit to think of a day on which the standard of judgment will be, as you have done, it shall be done to you. None of us measures up to God's perfection. So we saw in verse 17 that there are some who escape. Judgment isn't bad news for everyone. So, so who's in and who's out? Right? Is it good people are in and bad people are out? Or religious people are in, irreligious people are out? Jews are in, Gentiles are out? Who's, who's in and out? What does Obadiah tell us? Secondly, we need to see who doesn't escape. The proud. Now we know that the immediate reason God is announcing judgment on Edom is, is what they did on the day Jerusalem fell. But what, what was below that? What caused them to, to be so bold in mistreating God's people and so unafraid of the consequences? 
He says in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride. Now, pride can be kind of hard to define because there's a, there's a thing we call pride that's really fine, right? Um, when we mean, when by pride we just mean like satisfaction in a job well done, right? My two-year-old feels proud when he puts his shirt on by himself and, and God has no problem with that. That's not the kind of pride that brought Edom under God's judgment. So let's maybe get at this issue of what is pride by considering what we were made for. Okay, you and I and every human being were made to worship God and to love one another. Right? Those are the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So we were made to love God. We were made to worship God. And, and not because God is vain and he has low self-esteem and, and really he just needs compliments now and then to keep him going, but because God knows that his glory and his beauty and his greatness are what will make us most happy, what will give us deepest joy. We were made to enjoy greatness. It's why we go out to the sunset night after night. It's why we fly to the Alps and the Grand Canyon and why we, why we stare up at the Milky Way or the Northern Lights. We were made to enjoy greatness, especially the greatness of God, his beauty. And we were made to imitate his beauty. So God is an eternal community of Father, Son, and Spirit, loving one another, serving one another, delighting in one another. And he made us to, to imitate that community, to form a human community where, where everyone is welcomed and everyone is loved and everyone is served and everyone's needs are met, where everyone considers the others more significant than themselves. And that's the picture of the ideal life, the life we were made for. This standing before this beautiful God, surrounded by people who love him too, uh, serving one another, every need met, every heart full. And here's what pride does. It starts to make us seem bigger and bigger in our own eyes. It's like a funhouse mirror that's distorted in such a way that, that it makes you seem a lot taller than you are. It's sort of like turning a telescope around and looking in the wrong end so everything big looks small. And we start to grow in our own vision until everything else seems small, right? This great God who had been so wonderful and majestic now seems sort of like a peer, like maybe someone who has some good advice to offer, but, but not a Lord, not someone we must obey, we must serve, we must honor. And people become really small. And so we're no longer thinking, how can I serve you? We're thinking, what can you do for me? I mean, after all, I'm so big and you're, you're so little, Their importance just shrinks and shrinks. We become concerned not with what God says or with what people need, but with what we want. Our lives become wrapped up in ourselves. And so proud people can't live the life we were made for, right? Proud people can't worship God because they can't stop worshiping themselves. And they can't love people because they can't consider anyone else more significant than themselves. So pride is the root of sin. And pride is why we mistreat one another, right? First, I I become big, and God becomes small, and people become really small. And then once God is small, I feel free to treat people in ways that I never would if I feared God, if I I saw him as big as he really is. And and then even if I realize I've crossed the line, um, I I think I can handle the consequences on on my own, right? I'm big. I, I can do anything. I can handle this. I can fix this. I don't need forgiveness, for sure. I don't need help. I can manage on my own. And this is what happened to Edom, right? God wasn't big to Edom. And because he wasn't, because they were more concerned with serving themselves than serving him, they mistreated God's people. If they feared God, they would never have been at the crossroads, right? 
They would never have been doing that to God's people. And then once they did it, they weren't afraid that anything bad would ever happen to them. What did they trust in to keep them safe? Obadiah tells us. He says they trusted in their physical security. So Edom was up in the mountains. This is like south, southeast of the Dead Sea, up in the mountains. This is in what's now Jordan. Um, and, and they were up in the mountains, and there were these narrow passes to get up to where they were. It was like a natural fortress. And they thought, no one's ever going to make it up here. This is easy to defend. We're safe in our homes. But verse, like in verse 3, it says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You, live, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? So they trusted in their security. They trusted in their allies. They thought, we just did a huge, we just did a huge solid to Babylon. And now Babylon's going to protect us. It's going to take care of us. We've got a superpower at our back. We are fine. And they trusted in their wisdom and their cleverness. They thought, we can think our way out of this. We, we can figure out a plan. But verse 3 says that the pride of their heart deceived them. It was all an illusion. They're not big. God is big. And they are small, and their strength is nothing compared to his. So their fortress won't protect them. Look at verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Their allies won't protect them. Look at verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. And, and even their wisdom will fail them. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? There is no escape at all for the proud. And it's not just Edom that struggles with pride, right? Like, so here's one, here's one from my week. Now, some, a lot of you don't have kids yet, so I'm going to teach you something about children this morning. This is the one you may want to write down. So you know how when you get tired, you get a little off? Like you're a little bit easier to irritate, a little more emotional. So imagine that and strip away all self-awareness and self-control and you have a child up past his bedtime. And I, 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 kept, I, I chronically keep the kids up too late because I'm playing with them after work and I get them all riled up. And so the other night I was reaping what I'd sowed and one of the children emphatically did not want to put on his pajama shirt. And at that moment... I could have I realized, you know, this is really my fault. I kept you up too late. I can understand why you're so upset. I could have been patient and compassionate. And what I did instead was I just began to force his appendages through the holes in his shirt with what you might call a little roughness. And it just, like, he just dissolved into whales. He just fell on the floor. And at that point, I could have stopped. And I could have repented and I could have realized what I'd done. But instead what I did was I said, I can fix this. I'm just going to leave him. And he's going to wear himself out. If I get in the bed with the other child, we'll start reading stories and he'll be jealous. And then he'll climb up in here and I will never have to admit that I just did the worst thing ever to my children. He did not stop crying. And so eventually I had to get down on the floor and say, are you, are you upset because I was so rough with you? Yes. And so then I had to, you know, confess to him and ask his forgiveness. And just like that, like the waterworks turned off. It was just, the only reason he was crying was because I was too proud to admit what I had done wrong. Pride made me seem big. It made seem, God seem small. It made them seem really small. I wasn't concerned about their needs. I was just concerned about what was easy for me. And then pride made me not even, not even care about the right way to handle it. Just Keep on going in my own wisdom. It would be easy to think that pride is just a problem for Edom, but if we believed that, we'd be as deceived as they are. 
So do you see pride in your life? And the paradox is, if you do see pride, you're probably in better shape than those who say, no, because pride deceives, right? So it might help to ask ourselves some questions. And this is just some diagnostics for how pride shows itself in your life. How easy do you find it to forgive those who wrong you? So do you, do you find it easy to let things go, or do you hold on to things and meditate on them and bring them up again and again? How do you receive criticism? Is it, is it easy for you to see truth in what people say to you, or do you find yourself always defending yourself? How much do you pray? Do you see your need for God? Do you see how desperate you are for him? Or do you feel like, I can pretty much handle things myself. There's not really anything that I need to ask for. How occupied are you with how people think of you? I mean, does it crush you to come across as less intelligent or less competent than you are? Do you, do you find yourself obsessively checking social media to see who appreciates your witty tweets or who loves your, your sunset picture, right? It can't just be me. And actually, even after asking these questions, we can be deceived. So pride can be like kind of a smear of cream cheese on your cheek, right? Everyone knows it's there but you. So, so who can you ask? Who can you ask in your life that might help you discern pride? Maybe you haven't waited at the crossroads to turn God's people over to their enemies, but, but we struggle with the same issue Edom had, which is pride. We're in danger of judgment. So we desperately need to know who escapes. So finally, let's look at who does escape. Those who receive God's gracious promise. So look again at verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So who are these people who escape? Obadiah tells us that it's, it's the house of Jacob. It's the people who have just gone into exile. And this is confirmed in verse 20. The exiles of the house, host of this people of Israel shall possess the land. The exiles of Jerusalem shall possess. So it's the exiles. So, I mean, get this straight. The people that have been so bad that they have exhausted God's patience, that he has taken them out of the land, out of their homes, sent them thousands of miles away. I mean, these people have broken God's covenant, broken God's heart. They're so bad that God sent them away. And these are the people who escape his judgment. And what, what do they receive? Look at verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Esau, Mount Zion, to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So these exiles inherit the kingdom of God. He will get rid of their enemies forever. It talks about them possessing the land of their enemies, possessing uh, Esau, possessing the land of the Philistines. They possess the land of their enemies, and and God gives them all the land he promised to Abraham. So we're not going to read verses 19 and 20. It's a bunch of names that you might be entertained by trying to pronounce later on. But what he describes there is like the northern Uh, eastern, southern, and western boundaries of the land God promised to Abraham. He said, even though right now your enemies are living here, this is all going to be yours. He says that that they'll, they'll live on Mount Zion in Jerusalem again, and he says it will be holy. So even though the temple had just been desecrated and destroyed, he said it's going to be holy again. I will be in your midst. Though the temple has been destroyed, God will dwell among his people. But, but these people are so bad. So why do they escape? Why do they inherit the kingdom? They don't deserve it. No, they don't deserve it. And that is the point. God will treat them as if they did. Escape from judgment does not come to those who deserve it. 
I suppose it would come to someone who deserved it if anyone like that existed, but no one does. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all indulged pride. We've all made ourselves big. We've all made God small. We've all mistreated people we ought to have loved. Escape from judgment does not come to those who deserve it. It comes to those who receive God's gracious promise. God had made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He promised them a land of their own that would be theirs forever. He promised that he would dwell in their midst. He promised them a blessing, the blessing of his own approval and presence. He made them his treasured possession, his special people among all the nations on earth, and they walked away from him. They turned their back on him. They discarded God. They didn't fear him or love him or obey him. And so he sent, him into, he sent them into exile, and they had been unfaithful, and they knew they had been unfaithful. They knew that if God's blessing depended on their performance, the show was over. But his blessing doesn't depend on performance. It depends on his promise. He had promised to give them their land, to give them peace, to give them his blessing, and their unfaithfulness could not stop his faithfulness to his promise. God's love does not depend on our deserving it. No one deserves it. It depends on grace. God makes promises to people who don't deserve it, and then he keeps his promises just as if they did. And do you know that God has made promises to us? So Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or John chapter 5 verse 24, Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. God promises that everyone who trusts in Jesus escapes judgment. No one who receives his promise needs to fear condemnation. And, and can you see why proud people can't escape? Because they don't see their need for grace. They don't see their need to be forgiven. They don't see that they've done anything wrong. It's one more thing they can't do. They can't, they can't worship, they can't love, and they can't see their need to be rescued. They won't come to God for forgiveness. So it's not, it's not good people who escape. It's not religious people who escape. It's the people who admit that they, have, that they have done it all wrong, that they've been selfish and proud, and they've hurt people they shouldn't have and done things they can never take back, and they need God's grace and forgiveness. They're the ones who escape. But how can God do this? How can, he just, how can he be just? How can he be a good judge and just let some people go free? How can he bless people who don't deserve it? There are hints in this book of something that is to come. There are ways that Obadiah describes judgment that may have rung bells for you. So in verse 7, he says, he says that, that one of the judgments on Edom, when their allies betray them, he says that those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. Can you think of anyone else in Scripture later on betrayed by someone who shared his bread? In verse 11, he says that, that Edom was like those who entered Jerusalem. And one of the things that those people entered, who entered Jerusalem did was they cast lots for it. They gambled for the possessions of God's people. Can you think of anyone else whose possessions were divided by casting lots? Verse 16, he says to Edom, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. In the Bible, often judgment is pictured as a cup to be poured out, to be drunk by those who are facing judgment, who are under the judgment. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who faced 
a cup of judgment. How can God just let some people go free? Because Jesus didn't go free. Sinners can escape God's judgment because God's sinless son did not. Jesus is the one who was betrayed by Judas, who shared his bread at the Last Supper. The night before Jesus' death, he prayed, let this cup, the cup of judgment, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. While Jesus hung on the cross, the soldiers cast lots for his clothing. This is how God can treat those who deserve judgment as if they deserve the promises because his son who alone deserved the promises chose to take the judgment. Listen, there is no escape from God's judgment except through God's gracious promise. When you consider that you will one day stand before God, do not depend on being pretty good. Do not depend on your baptism. Do not depend on church membership. Do not depend on the money you've given away to charity. Don't depend on the fact that you have a happy family. Don't depend on the fact that you have stature in the community. The only escape from judgment is to confess to God, I don't deserve your love or acceptance, but you have promised that everyone who trusts in Jesus has passed from death to life. He took the death I deserved so I can have the life he deserves. There is no escape from God's judgment except through God's gracious promise. And if we take this truth deeply into our hearts, what kind of people will we be? We'll be deeply assured of God's acceptance because it depends on his promise and not on our performance, and and that'll free us from fear of death and fear of judgment. We'll be deeply humbled that our pride cost the Son of God his life, and that will free us to genuinely worship God and love people. And we'll be secure enough in God's love and power that instead of always defending ourselves or dwelling on our hurts, we'll be able to wait in hope for the day he rights every wrong and welcomes us into the perfect life we were made for. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you again. This whole book, all of scripture, points to you. You are you are glorious and you are great. You are supreme in power. And no one has loved us like you have. No one has done what you have done, Jesus, that you hung on the cross under God's judgment so we could go free. And I pray that you would help us to trust in that, not trust in ourselves proudly, but humbly look to you and that you would make us a humble people who love to worship and love to love others and wait with eagerness for the day you come, the day of the Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.